0: me. In fact, I would encourage you to have that because as we begin to preach, we're going to look at a few of those verses a little more closely. So I'm beginning at verse uh, 10. The governor made a sign for Paul to speak, so Paul answered, Governor Felix, I know that you have been a judge over this nation for a long time, so I am happy to defend myself before you. I went to worship in Jerusalem only 12 days ago. You can learn for yourself that this is true. These Jews who are accusing me did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or making trouble with the people. And I was not making trouble or arguing in the synagogue or any other place in the city. These men cannot prove the things that they are saying against me now. But I will tell you this, and this is the part that I want you to hear. I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which these Jews say is not the right way. And I believe everything that is taught in the law of Moses and that is written in the book of the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these Jews have, the hope that all people, good and bad, will be raised from death. This is why I always try to do what I believe is right before God and before everyone. I was away from Jerusalem for many years. I went back to take money to help my people. I also had some gifts to offer at the temple. I was doing this when some Jews saw me there. I had finished the cleansing ceremony. I had not made any trouble and no one was gathering around me. But some Jews from Asia were there. They should be here standing before you. If I have really done anything wrong, they are the ones who should accuse me. They were there. Ask these men if they found any wrong in me when I stood before the high council meeting in Jerusalem. I did say one thing when I stood before them. And shouted, you are judging me today because I believe that people will rise from death. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, you have gathered us here in your great plan this morning from many places and from many backgrounds. You've gathered us here as people who are wanting to hear a word from you. And you've given us your word in Scripture. You've caused that Scripture to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present with us here this morning so that we would hear with ears that are attentive so that the mysteries of Scripture would become living, breathing realities for us. We thank you as well for the sacrament of baptism, which is a sign and a seal of the truths of our faith. We thank you for the children who will come forward to receive that baptism today. Lord, we ask that you be present by the power of your Spirit in our hearts individually. We would pray that you would convict those who are still outside of the fold. We pray that you would strengthen those who are in the fold. And we pray that you would bring glory to you, to yourself. For you alone are worthy, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. So if you have there in your bulletin that passage, I would ask that you would open that up because I just want you to have these verses in front of you. I'm going to just look at verse 14 through verse 16 and then jump down to the end at verse 21. This is really the core of what Paul is saying in his defense. Of course, what you have here in Scripture, it's not a transcript of everything that was said. It's kind of a condensed version. I mean, maybe Paul talked for 20 minutes, or maybe he talked for 40 minutes. I don't know how long his speech was. But what you have here in the Acts of the Apostles is a kind of a summary of what he said. And at verse 14, we read this. I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. Now, sometimes Christians are confused about this. What's the relationship between Christians and Jews? Paul, of course, was born a Jew. He was a very religious Jew. He was a good Jew. He was an observant Jew. He was part of a group that were called Pharisees. And But Paul begins his Christian confession... By saying, I worship the God of our fathers as the follower of the way. In other words, Paul is saying that to be a Christian is simply to be worshipping the same God that the Jews are worshipping. We who follow Christ have been grafted into Abraham. Okay, We don't have anything over the Jews. We've been joined to them. They are the root out of which this truth emerges. I worship the God of our fathers. It's not a new God. It's not a different God. And the important thing to see here, I think, is that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the New Testament, the, G- uh, the Greek Scriptures, are one. All right, Be very, very careful of dividing the Bible and saying, oh, this is the real part of the Bible, and that part's just history. It's one Bible. All right, we worship the God of our fathers as the followers of the way. As I said, the way is just the word that was used during those years for what we would now call the church. Secondly, the Jews say that this is not the right way. Okay, so there's a there's a difference of opinion. They're both worshiping the same God, but there's a difference of opinion about uh, how that uh, um, uh, about how that worship is supposed to take place. The church is the way, and it's interesting, I, I would love to know who came up with this term, the church is the way. One of the things that we uh, see is that Jesus identifies himself as the way. You all r- recall his saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now this is an audacious claim. So here he is, he's a, a, Jesus is a wandering Jewish rabbi, and he's preaching to thousands and thousands of people in Palestine, and he says, you know, the only way that you have access to the Father, to Yahweh, to the God of the Old Testament, the only way that you have access to him is through me, all right? You can see why that would upset some people, but that's the dividing line. As Christians, we affirm that Jesus was not lying, that he was telling the truth when he says that I am the way. The other thing is is that Jesus describes two ways. He said that broad is the way that leads to destruction and death, but narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few are going to find it. He, of course, is describing the way that he has laid out The Christian life is a path, it's a journey, it's a road, it's a way. We enter that way by professing faith in Jesus Christ. What we're going to see this morning is a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. When we profess faith in Jesus Christ, when we acknowledge ourselves as sinners, and Him as our Savior, we enter the way. Well, that's not the end of the story, that's the beginning of the story. Okay, we're gonna see two young Christians who've already professed faith in Jesus Christ now in baptism make a public profession of faith. By the way, there are no closeted Christians. Okay? You can't just believe in Jesus in your heart and not tell anyone and actually be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be out of the closet. Okay? And the way that we are out of the closet is by being publicly baptized. Okay? Those doors are open. Anyone can come in here. This is not a secret meeting, all right. Thank God we live in a country where Christians don't have to meet in secret. In other places in the world, persecution is going on, all right. And even in those places, they're out of the closet, all right. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be on that way. And so these young people are entering that way. It's a narrow way. The world's way is wide. The world says, hey, you can do whatever you want. You can be any way you want to be. You just got to love yourself the way you are. All right? Jesus says that way leads to destruction. It leads to death, eternal death. There's a narrow way that Jesus has prescribed. It's also a safe way. And it's a way that has been defined by God himself. It's been revealed to us in the law of God. God, who is our creator, made the operating instructions for the creatures that he created. He knows how we're supposed to work. And if we work the way we're supposed to work, then guess what happens? We become really good versions of ourselves. The narrow way, like a train on a train track, is where we operate the way we're designed to operate, and so we flourish and we prosper, and we are the best version of ourselves. Hey, the train that's off the track may feel free. I'm not on the track. You know, no straight and narrow for me. I get to go wherever I want to go. That's a lousy train. It's not going to accomplish very much. All right? So by being on that narrow way, we actually become who we need to be and who God has made us to be. It is the way. It's the way that leads to life. The Bible says the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Which is why the call of the gospel is so urgent. Life is short. Eternity is really long. And we want to get it right now. Because there's not an option to get it right after this life is over. Okay? We've got to get it right now. Alright? Further down. Paul says, And I believe everything that is taught in the law of Moses, and all that is written in the prophets. Okay, now the Old Testament is divided up into the law and the prophets... The law, that's just kind of a generic term for the first five books for the, we also call it the Torah. Alright, you remember that, uh, Moses brings the law down from Mount Sinai. That law kind of creates the identity of the people of God. It tells them how they're gonna live and how they're gonna worship and how they're gonna marry and how they're gonna handle property and, you know, how they're gonna do, handle disputes and how they're gonna handle, uh, uh, crime. All of that's laid in the law of God, in the Torah. The Torah also gives us uh, the account of the creation of the world. I have become more and more convinced over time that those first two chapters of Genesis are among the most important chapters in the Bible. Description of God's creation of the world. Look, we live in a secular world today that denies that this world is created. That imagines that it just kind of always was, or that it is self-made, or that, I don't know what they think. I don't know how you explain that there's something rather than nothing, but there it is, and well, whatever, we're just, that's it. What scripture reveals is that the world that we see in its complexity and its beauty was actually made by an intelligent being who's not part of this world. We call him God. You can call him whatever you want, but we call him God. That story is part of the law of Moses. The prophets is another part of the Old Testament, and it's basically preaching. So the Old Testament prophets, they're the first five books that sort of are the foundation and then in the other prophets, uh, you know, they're preaching to the people of God. And the preaching in the prophets is always a pointing back to the law. You know, oh Israel, you know, here's what you're doing. And if you don't stop doing it, you're going to get in trouble. Please start doing what it is that you know you're supposed to be doing. And what you're supposed to be doing is back in the law. Okay, so the prophets are always pointing back to the law. The law is foundational because it reveals God's design for the universe and God's design for our lives. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I believe everything that is taught in that law. Be careful if you think you are wiser than the Apostle Paul in parsing the Old Testament. Oh, I don't believe that part. I would like to see your credentials that place you above the Apostle Paul, divinely inspired, filled with the Holy Spirit, a martyr for the faith who had his head cut off because he had met the resurrected Christ. I dare you to say that you know more about the Old Testament than the Apostle Paul. And those people who call themselves Christians and reject parts of the Old Testament, oh, that, that's not true. We're more advanced than that. We're scientific now. Be careful. Be careful who you claim to be. Be careful of your arrogance and pride. Humble yourself before the Lord. Verse 15. I have the same hope in God that these Jews have. Okay, he's being hauled in court by fellow Jews. They're upset with him because he's uh, proclaiming the resurrection. You'll remember... uh, In in the well, actually, man, we've been talking about this for a month now. In that first encounter there at the religious court, Paul exploits a division in the Jewish religious community. There are some Jews who believe in the resurrection, who believe in spirits, and who believe in angels. Okay, they're religious people who have not lost the supernatural. All right. Paul fits into that category. Those those people are called Pharisees, all right? And many of them did become Jews. There was another camp, however, who were very religious, who were very careful about how they were going to do everything, but they didn't believe in anything supernatural. They had a this-world religion, okay? Some people will present you a version of Christianity that's just about this world, all right? And they will fault people like Paul, saying, well, all he all he's offering is pie in the sky when you die. We in this world, which is a beautiful world, which is a valuable world, are part of something that's much bigger than this world. And if you think that this world is all that there is, and if your vision only goes to the edge of this world, you're missing out on the context. The context is, is that there is a God outside of this world. There are supernatural things going on. There are angels and spirits that we can't see with our natural eye, but that are interacting with this world at all times. And there's going to be a resurrection at the end of time dead people will stop being dead all right it's been in a core teaching of the church since day 1 it's not a metaphor it's not mm, a nice old story that you know we will tell to the children but we as adults don't don't really believe okay our hope is in the resurrection in the case of the apostle paul this is particularly poignant because paul Hated the church. Paul was responsible for the death of Christians. And then guess what happened? You've heard the story. It's, it's a weird story, but it's a true story. One day, a man who had been dead shows up and talks to him. Alright, well now I can't argue with you anymore about whether or not there's a resurrection. Because I know that you're, you were dead. And now you're alive, here you're talking to me. That turned him around. Paul met the resurrected Jesus and it blew his mind and just flipped his world. And so he went from being a hater of the church. Well, how are you going to argue? Dead man, live now. I talked to him. What, I don't, there's, don't, you, I don't need a philosophical or scientific proof. I saw it. I'm not an idiot. Well, and you know, here's the thing about the resurrection. It wasn't just Paul who saw the resurrected Jesus. There were about 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus. A lot of different kinds of people saw him. And when the Gospels were written, they were written during a time when a lot of those people were still alive. And if they had been... if they had been lying or if they had just been fools or if they had been like mentally ill and delusional, having hallucinations, you know somebody would have said something, and the weird thing about the ancient literature is is it's silent on that. all we hear is this uniform testimony of the church, multiple voices, people saying, know yeah, 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 I mean it's weird, I know it's weird, but Jesus got killed and Then he wasn't dead anymore. And we saw him and we ate with him and we talked with him and we went for a walk with him. What are you going to say? The hope that all people, good and bad, will be raised from death. Some of the Jews believed in this. The Pharisees believed in it. And many of the Pharisees did become Christians. The hope of the resurrection is core to the gospel. It's core to to the Christian faith. We, as Christians, have professed the resurrection of the dead since the earliest times of the church. We, after, uh, as part of our baptismal, uh, as part of the baptism, we're going to um, recite the Apostles' Creed, one of the really early creeds of the church. And one of the lines in there is is, is the, the belief in the resurrection from the dead. All right, well, that's, I have a whole I haven't started my sermon yet. So I'm a little worried. <laughs> Cuz I mean, my sermon's here. Here's page 1, okay? So we haven't we haven't gotten into the sermon yet. So my it, what jumped out at me in in Paul's speaking here is this line here, I have the same hope in God that these Jews have, the hope that all people good and bad will be raised from death. Now, it's important that we recognize that the resurrection is not just of Christians. It's not just of believers in Jesus. It's not just of people who are righteous or justified. Everybody is going to be resurrected. Okay, when the resurrection happens, it's going to be a general resurrection. Everybody gets resurrected. But here's the puzzle about it. Not everyone's going to be happy. about being resurrected. Think about some of the most heinous criminals that we have witnessed in recent years. They kill people, and what do they do? They off themselves. They go into a crowd of people and blow themselves up. Okay? Somehow, I'm able to live with my heinousness by putting an end to my own life. I'm now beyond your, your reach. I'm beyond the law. The law can't do anything to me. I got away. Ha ha ha. How surprised are they gonna be when they get resurrected and they get to meet the judge? Okay? There will be justice in the end. After the resurrection comes the judgment. And all people will be judged. Everybody who's ever lived on planet earth will stand before the judge. And that judge will be Jesus. Okay? The resurrection happens at the second coming. Jesus is going to appear. And the dead in Christ will rise. And the prophets are pretty clear that the day of the Lord or the second coming isn't going to be good news for everyone. It's going to be good news for those who are in Christ. It's going to be good news for the righteous. But for those who have rejected God, oh, woe to them. Listen to Amos chapter 5 verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. Malachi 3, 1 and 2. The Lord will suddenly come into his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? That's an important question. Who is it that's going to be able to stand in front of the maker of the entire universe? I don't... I I mean, it's going to blow our minds. We're going to stand in front of the maker of the universe. Well, he's not just the maker of the universe. He's also the writer of the law. And now he's the judge. So it's going to be triply mind-blowing. Who can stand in that circumstance? Well, the answer is only the person who's asked for God's mercy. Only the person who's received God's mercy. Only the person who's wrapped themselves in the robes of Christ. The Bible says none are righteous. No, not one. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When you walked into this building, you walked under a sign. You may not have read it, but you walked under a sign announcing that this is a fellowship of sinners. Alright? This church is a fellowship of sinners. You're not allowed to join this church if you're not a sinner. Alright? We're also redeemed. Okay? We've been born again. But we recognize that... We had a problem with God. It's our sin problem. And we recognize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, there are a lot of people walking around with a very kind of uh, unrealistic uh, evaluation of their own merit and their own worth. I'm not as bad as that guy. I've never been to jail. Our standards are not God's standards. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And that death is, of course, the judgment that God had warned Adam and Eve about way back in the Garden of Eden. The problem with sin is that it not only violates our own standards. I mean, you know, in our hearts of hearts, even those of us who are not Christians, even those of us who reject what the Bible talks about, uh, we still have standards that we know that we fall short of. We know that we have uh, uh, all of us have an uneasy conscience about how how we how we've lived, but it's not just that sin violates our own personal standards. It's not just that I haven't lived up to who I uh, see myself being, but it also insults God. and God in his very nature is entirely opposed to anything that violates his law. God hates sin. I mean, we always talk about God being a loving God. But God hates sin. And the reason he hates it is because sin messes up all of the good stuff that he made. He made this beautiful thing, and then we come storming through it and mucking it up. And he hates that. It's like a vandal. Vandal senselessly and hatefully destroying beautiful works of art, killing beautiful children, just smashing. That's what sin does. It creates ugliness and destruction all around us. And God hates sin because God loves his world. He loves his creation. He loves us. Now the problem with sin internally, in our own hearts, in our own lives, is that sin is like a drug. And being a sinner is being like an addict. And addicts can't help themselves. Okay? An addict needs someone outside of himself who intervenes, who makes an intervention. The Bible says that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses is when Christ intervened. Do you get what's happening there? Okay, dead people don't do anything. If you've been raised from death, it's not you who raised yourself, it's Jesus who raised you, alright? And so, God has to intervene because we can't save ourselves. Yeah, you know, I'm all for people improving their lives and having new resolutions, but man, if you think you're gonna improve your way into heaven, woo! You're wrong. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, I don't know if you've thought about what that means, that he gave the only begotten son. But what it means is that he gave him as a sacrifice. Gave him to die. Okay? Because the death of Christ pays for the sins of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to be a sacrifice for our sins on the cross that whoever believes in him will not die but will inherit eternal life. Okay? John 3.16, it's probably the, you know, the most famous verse in the Bible. Even pagans and people who watch baseball know John 3.16. But the verse that I like is the one after it. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Okay. God isn't out to get us. God is out prowling around to save us. All right. And if you've had God chasing you in your life, it's because he loves you and he wants you And he wants to have a relationship with you. Some of you might have children who are estranged from you. Who've gone off, who've broken ties with family. Nothing could be more grieving to a parent. Parents never get over this. And God the Father feels that way about us. In our sin and in our rebellion, we've alienated ourselves from the family of God. We've walked away from God. We've walked away from our birthright. And God is relentless in pursuing us because God loves us. God sent His Son into the world so that the world might be saved through Him. Who can endure the day of His second coming? Who can endure when Christ will stand in front of the world and judge the whole world in His glory? Only those who've placed their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Only those who have recognized their own sin, their need for a Savior, who've recognized their inability to fix this problem, only those who have cast themselves on the mercy of God and say, Help! Only those who've trusted in the shepherd who's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So have you done that? Has God brought you to the point where you realize, you know, I have a problem with God and I need to get this straightened out. Has God brought you to the point where you realize and he's offering freely this gift that we receive in faith? Have you given up the delusion of thinking that you're good enough on your own? Have you repented of your sin and asked God for mercy? Have you trusted God's promise that whoever believes in Jesus and publicly professes their faith, you can't just do it in your closet. There are no closeted Christians. Have you done it? Now this morning, it's our great privilege It's our joy to witness the public profession of faith of two children that have been raised in this congregation. Okay. Now these children, I met them at Abington Hospital. Okay. The day they were born. We've been walking with them this whole time. Okay. And when their parents brought them before this church to dedicate them, they promised To raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord in the hope that one day they would profess faith in Jesus Christ. That hope is coming true today, right? And we as the church made promises to those little babies that we carried around. We made promises to their parents that we would walk with those kids and that we would provide the Christian nurture for them. That's what we do in our Christian ed program. That's that's what your tithes and offerings go to, to support raising these kids in the faith. That's where your contributions to Valley Christian School go to, to helping young kids understand the gospel. What we're seeing today is the fulfillment of promises that were made 10 and 11 years ago. They're, They're bearing fruit now. You've been investing Week by week in these children. And now you're beginning to see the payoff uh, of this investment. It's one thing to know about Jesus. And it's another thing to know Jesus. These children... So this is a part of the Presbyterian process. Maybe you've not been born in the Presbyterian church. But it, th- these children had to come before the session. The board of elders who rule this church very mean and stern people, and present their testimony. And then they're grilled, you know, on the Westminster Catechism and double predestination. Okay? The reason that we bring them before this session is we want to hear from their lips that they're trusting in Jesus. We want to make sure that it's not just their parents who are forcing them into this. This is a free will choice. Okay? Okay? And they came, and they spoke beautifully before the session. We did examine them, uh, and we are, have full confidence uh, that they have an appropriate uh, understanding of the gospel and that they have truly been converted and born again. Okay? That's why we're baptizing them. The baptism is nothing magic about what's going to happen here today. All right Their sins have already been washed away. All right We're going to get them wet, and we're going to dunk them. The water is really warm, by the way. Okay, it's like, it's a warm bath in there. Uh, but we, we baptize as Christians as a public sign, as a sign to the world, uh, uh, of who it is that we are. Okay, so I think what I probably need to do now is call them forward. But here's a final thing uh, I want to offer you this morning. We're going to invite uh, these children forward and they can come with their whole crews and their family, whoever you want to have come forward with them. Um and, We're going to take them through a series of questions which are their public profession of faith. If you want to profess your faith in Jesus Christ too, I would invite you to stand up where you are while we're asking those questions. And you can answer them yourself. Okay, You'll hear the questions. All right, and I think we're going to do that now, and I think there's another part of what I need that's missing. And you, here, here's the tough part. Usually, Charlene Crawford ha- helps with all these things, but she's the mother right now. All right, let's get some of these kids up here. Oh, wait a second. No, right back where you are, Charlene. I just remember one more thing. Oh, that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I left some things over in my office, so we're going to have to do it a different way, unless they're over there. Um. Let's uh, confess what it is that we believe as Christians using the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. This week, providentially, it happens to be about baptism. Uh, the questions are there in, in your bulletins, and uh, I'll read the question, and you can respond with the answer. How does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? Where does, Christ prom- where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? Davis and Naomi Crawford and their whole crew.